You're listening to Beyond the Studio, a podcast for artists. I'm Amanda Adams. And I'm Nicole Muller. We're both independent working artists ourselves. And here on the podcast, we have honest conversations with fellow visual artists about their careers and the real work that happens beyond the studio. You can find us online at our website, beyondthe.studio, or on social media at Beyond the Studio, where we share episode links, visuals, and so much more. If you're an artist and would like to be featured on our social media, or maybe even on the show, you can submit yourself to our listener spotlight and share what you're learning beyond the studio. Just follow the link in our show notes or go to beyondthe.studio slash contact. Beyond the Studio is a fiscally sponsored project of independent arts and media, IAM, a 501c3 nonprofit organization. You can make contributions to the podcast by going over to our website, beyondthe.studio slash about, and click on the button that says donate here. All donations made through IAM are tax deductible. Your support is greatly appreciated and goes directly towards sustaining the work of the podcast. If you love the show and haven't rated, reviewed, or shared the podcast, what are you waiting for? Please take a moment to show us your support. If you've already done this, thank you. It means so much to us, and it's one of the best ways to help us keep going and growing. Every artist has a different idea about what they what they want to be doing with their practice. And so we really take the lead from the artist first in terms of what kind of recognition they are looking for, what kind of context they are looking for for their work, and, and what is inform, informing the practice. And so that that is always primary. As I've told a, a lot of people, it's like, we don't, we don't have this playbook. It's not like you come work with us and we like hand over this binder and it's like, okay, here's step number one, step number two, and create this cookie cutter approach to everybody ultimately you know, going to show with one of the big five galleries or something like that. Because you know, as much as that can be desirable, you also talk to a number of those artists or other people who've talked to artists who are at these big five galleries and they're like, we never talked to anybody there. Like, I don't get any support there. It's like, great. They're, you know, we have these shows and the price point is at a certain thing. And I'm getting, you know, depending on who you are, you might get a you know big upfront advance to open a new studio and have studio managers paid for and other all these other types of things. But you know, those are businesses too. And so, as John said, that kind of like for six weeks, you're a best friend and then you're, and then you're kind of, you know, out in the wilderness for a little bit is, is something I think a lot of artists experience. Welcome everyone to Beyond the Studio. Today's conversation is pretty unique um, as we have three guests joining us on the podcast for a sort of roundtable discussion Joey Flores, the founder of Inversion Art, as well as Jonathan Neal, a co-founder and partner of Inversion Art, and John Hauk, an artist and participant, if you will, in Inversion Art, um, which we're here to talk about today. Um, so we're really excited to have you guys all on the podcast. We first learned about Inversion Art via an article on TechCrunch. And we knew almost immediately that we wanted to have you all on the podcast. We are really interested in alternative funding models here on Beyond the Studio, especially ones that center and empower artists as agents of their own careers who are looking to build long-term sustainable lives and artists who embrace their identity as being entrepreneurial, proactive, or really invested in the business side of their practices. So these are all the topics that we love to talk about on Beyond the Studio. 
And uh, Inversion Art is a startup company, which you'll hear more about. The TechCrunch article that we're referring to, um, and we can also link in the show notes, described Inversion Art as the Y Combinator of the art world. And if that doesn't mean anything to you, uh, I'm sure Joey will tell us more about it, but Y Combinator is like an accelerator incubator program based in Silicon Valley that's responsible for a lot of big name companies you've probably heard of, like Airbnb, DoorDash, Dropbox, Instacart. And as an artist based in San Francisco, um, that definitely resonated. But I think when I read the TechCrunch article, I was initially a little bit skeptical, and it was only after really diving into your website that... I was struck by how artist-centered the language was and how really um, unique the model that you all are creating was. So anyways, just a little bit of background to get us into the conversation. But yeah, thank you all for joining. Maybe we could just go around briefly and have you all introduce yourselves and just give a little bit more background. If, uh, Joey, you want to start? Sure, thank you. My name is Joey Flores. I've been in tech startups for 24 years. Um, I've also been an artist my whole life. Started out as a kind of illustrator as a kid, moved to LA and got really wrapped up in the spoken word scene. That ended up turning into actually a musical project. I had a band for four years. So I've always been a very creative person, um, you know, working on art projects of some kind, and I always throw myself at them quite um, quite heavily. Um, but my career has been in tech startups. And my last company got into Y Combinator in 2011, and I just found that program to, you know, it changed my life. It's, a, it's an incredibly um, exciting program to be a part of. It's a great community to be a part of. And uh, so in 2020, when the idea kind of came um, to, you know, that there might be space in the art world for a Y Combinator type company and program for artists, um, you know, that just felt really exciting to me. And so, yeah, you know, I'm trying to take what I've learned from tech entrepreneurship and the, the venture capital landscape and apply it to investing in artists and super excited that it's going as well as it is. I'm John Houck. I'm an artist. I've been mostly an artist for the last 15 years uh, or so. I went to UCLA for my MFA. Prior to that, I worked uh, in software for a company called Sun Microsystems that that no longer exists, but um, done a good bit of programming as well. And that's been something that I continue to be interested in and uh, occasionally lean on in uh, leaner economic times uh, in the art world. So it's a, it's a great combination. And after my MFA, then I went to um, lived in New York for a while and did the Whitney Independent Study Program as well. And um, yeah, that's the, the, the short bio. Yeah, I saw you also work with Jessica Silverman Gallery, uh, which is a terrific gallery here in San Francisco. And I think I, I first saw your work actually at Fog Fair in San Francisco a few years ago, if I remember. Oh, amazing. Yeah. Yeah, I've worked with Jessica about five years now. Um, I had a solo show in her space called Fused Space, which is a kind of other space she has in San Francisco. I don't know that she still programs out of that one. But um, yeah, and then she's taken my work to Fog. She's She's great. That's, that's so cool. Awesome. You, you saw that, that work. Yeah. 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 There's some really great spaces here in SF. I forgot to ask where um, you all are based. So John, did maybe you mentioned. I didn't know. I am. I was mostly in LA and now I've been in Portland, Oregon the last few years, but our plan is to move back to LA. So yeah, move, moving around a, a bit. And then Joey, where, where were you based? I am incredibly nomadic. Uh, right now I'm in uh, Sacramento. In about a week I'll be in LA and then three weeks after that I will be in Mexico. So uh, I, um, yeah, I'm moving to Oaxaca for a while and um, yeah, <laughs> ask me in a couple months and it will probably be some other answer. So, 
Awesome. Uh, okay, so I will go last. I'm based in Los Angeles, and I also go last because this also gives me a chance to talk about John, all the things that John Hauck wasn't going to talk about, um, which is that he also has an amazing show of paintings up at Candace Mady Gallery in New York right now, which goes through the end of this month in February. So hopefully if the listeners are, if this, if this drops before the end of February, then people will get a chance to go see that show. It's called Perfect Temperature Lava, and it's a series of paintings that are a new departure for John and his practice, which began with a very rigorous photographic-based and photo-based series of works that were widely collected and became very widely known. John was in the Made in LA biennial here in Los Angeles and has had his work in a number of important institutional shows and collections. The the painting practice is a really interesting extension of that photographic practice and picks up on a lot of the sort of intellectual and psychological dimensions that are embedded in those works, but then go beyond the the mere mediums that they are expressed in, which I think is really interesting to see. And so it's been enjoyable for me and I think for us in general to be part of what uh, John has been able to be working on in this kind of transitional phase as he's developing a new language and we get to play a, a small supporting role to help sort of define some of that language and talk it through and find people to have John talk to and do all these other things. That's my, <laughs> I'm going to add for forever, for, will forever be advocating for the, the artists that we work with. For me personally, my background I trained as an architect, left architecture to pursue a doctorate in art and architectural history, did that in New York City, did not want to go on the academic job track, so stayed in New York, wrote for art magazines, was on the masthead of Art Review Magazine for a while, I'm on the masthead as an editor at large at the Brooklyn Rail now, and uh, worked for the Drawing Center, started a curatorial company in New York back in the mid-2000s, and then for about a decade began to develop art market and art business and arts management programs for at first Sotheby's Institute of Art in New York and then came to Los Angeles in 2013 to establish the LA uh, branch of of that institution uh, in partnership with Claremont Graduate University and the Claremont Colleges gradually developed something called the Center for Business and Management of the Arts at Claremont Graduate University, which had master's degree programs in arts management and art business, and was doing that for, I think, 10 years total, uh, towards the end of which I met Joey, had heard a lot of interesting pitches for new ventures in the art and cultural sector, both in the nonprofit and the for-profit realms. And what Joey had in mind for a Y Combinator for the art world was really exciting to me and so exciting that I stayed in my academic job for one more year <laughs> to test it out. And uh, and then at the end of that, decided it was time to jump in with two feet. And uh, so now I've been doing this full time as, uh, as we build uh, Inversion Art. Yeah, I think what's so unique about Inversion Art or what stood out to us initially is that it is pulling what seems to have worked so successfully in the tech and venture capital world and aiming to apply that to the visual arts. And we were chatting a little bit about this behind the scenes, but the only other arts organization that I can think of that I've seen do this is Creative Capital, who listeners will be very familiar with. And we had done an interview with Ruby Lerner, the founder, uh, last year, where she talked about her inspirations and how that was the basis for the model that Creative Capital follows, although they are a nonprofit, whereas Inversion Art is decidedly for-profit. So we're just really interested to hear more about 
what inspired Inversion Art, how it came about. Um, so maybe this is a question for Joey Jonathan, but would love to hear more about the origin story. Well, like I said, I, you know, I went through YC in 2011 and before I got into YC, like no investors would meet with me about my company at all. We couldn't get one single meeting. And then we got into YC and ended up raising $1.7 million from some of the most exciting investors in Silicon Valley. Yeah, it, it, it changed my life and it continues to change my life. I mean, you know, once you're part of the alumni network, it's, it's you know, it's a, unless you screw up somehow, you know, it's a very permanent, you know, you know community to be, that you get to be a part of. And I'm still in the forums like every week, you know, um, you know, see, receiving advice from some of the best founders in the world. And it's it just like, it's, it's a super transformative opportunity. I mentioned that I was, you know, like an illustrator as a kid, and then I got into music and stuff. But actually, in 2018, I picked up painting again um, and just got really excited about visual art and started painting and taking classes and lessons and just trying to become better at painting. And in 2020, I was I was chatting with a venture capitalist uh, on on a Zoom call, and he happened to see one of my paintings behind me, and you know, started talking about how he he collects art and whatnot. And he said, you know, I always thought there ought to be a, a Y combinator for artists. And like my head just kind of exploded. I was like, oh my God, like that sounds amazing. <laughs> like, you know, I thought just YC changed my life, but like really all I care about is art and artists. And so, you know, like this idea to, you know, apply what what had been so profound for me to the art world just sounded amazing. And so this person wasn't wasn't in a position to do anything with this idea. And, and so, you know, I said, you know, like I'm gonna explore some ideas here and ended up um, embarking on about five and a half months of like really intense market research, you know, talked to dozens and dozens of artists and some gallerists and other people in the arts field and other art tech companies. And, you know, um, I like to joke, like when I started that research, like I didn't know what a Gagosian was, um, you know, like I, <laughs> you know, I, I really didn't know anything about the art market. I did not know that, you know, the, the, the typical gallery split is 50-50, like all of that stuff, you know, I, I had no idea. Um, I knew what it was like to be an artist and to like hate to deal with your own business affairs and, you know, to feel like you don't know how to like how, how to strategize for yourself. And, and, you know, I, I knew what it was like to be an artist and just not, not see a clear path to success. And, you know, I, I came from that perspective, but when it came to the art market, I really just didn't know much. And, um, so I just went on this like exploration of the market with like a totally open mind. And, you know, I started by like writing out, like, what are all of the things that YC did for me that were so valuable? Like, what do they do that is super successful? What is like, what are the like components and the things and the ways that they add value? And I thought, and I, and I just kept trying to like draw a line between, okay, they do it that way. Like, how would you want to do that in the arts, right? And so with all these interviews and stuff, originally when the idea had been floated to me, it was like, you know, sort of like, was going to be kind of an income sharing model. And, you know, like you would have to pay back this investment, you know, directly. And, and to me, as I started talking to artists and other people, it became really clear that, that um, you know, if you wanted to think about investing in artists, like the work you know, if you're talking about fine artists, like their work is the equity, like buying, that's where the, the potential for upside is, is you, you, you know, buy a painting today for $20,000, the artist's career takes off and, you know, in five years it's worth, you know, a million bucks. That's where, you know, the, the actual potential for upside is. And so it was, it was great to find that like there was, you know, that in fact, the way to have a really interesting sort of venture style model was simply to buy work, which was also what artists just really want anyways, right? Like instead of, you know, investing in them and then expecting them to pay you back when, you know, immediate capital is not always the easy way, easy thing for them to come by, you know, buying their work and investing in that way and, and, and holding that as the equity turned out to be super fair for the artists and also the better model. Yeah, it was just through all that research that, you know, um, started to put together some numbers and think like, okay, you know, 
this is how much we should invest. This is how we think that the returns will be on the art and things like that. And it was through that research, um, somebody at the, uh, an organization called the Arts Funders Forum, which, um, you know, advocates for new funding models in the arts. You know, I, there was a woman there named uh, Melissa Cowley-Wolf uh, that is just super nice. And she said, you know, have you ever talked to Jonathan Neal over at the Center for Business and Management in the Arts? And I had not. So she put me in touch with Jonathan and first call was like, oh man, this guy knows everything I need to know. Like, <laughs> you know, this is going to make my market research go so much easier. And so every week I'm like, Jonathan, can we get another call? Can we get another call? And uh, yeah, after about two months of me, you know, um, abusing his time, um, finally we went and got some beers and I asked him if he was interested in doing this together. And, and thank God he said yes. I, I, that's a, that's a polite way of putting it. I mean, it's, it's, it was a, it was an interesting, it was, it's a very interesting idea. I mean, I think that from my side, you know, the part of the origin story is after sort of a decade in higher ed and also spending a lot of time with students who are heading into the nonprofit sector of the arts, whether for museums or music centers or cultural centers of one sort of another, you know, to be perfectly frank, I was feeling very uh, disillusioned with a debt-driven credentialing model of professionalizing art and cultural practice, where there are these sort of, you know, I think for certain places important but expensive degrees that would mint people out into a professional world. And I, and I do think that, you know, the art and cultural sector d demands a kind of professionalism to it. You know, the, the mythologies of a kind of, of, you know, that every artist stands, you know, outside of their culture and is sort of, you know, some sort of other flaneur and the sort of larger avant-garde world is, is do, does not fit what every, what every artist is interested in doing or what every artistic existence is designed to be. And working with artists, working with arts managers and, you know, nonprofit, we used to, to sort of joke around with a lot of art martyrs, realizing that the, 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 the way that the art and cultural sector was set up had a lot of, had a lot of challenges and had a lot of problems to it. And that the, and that the way to seek change in it wasn't to simply, you know, more campaigns, more advocacy, more earnest uh, mission driven sensibilities on social media, the way to make that change was to actually experiment and try to start new things, new ventures, new new entrepreneurial activity, either in the nonprofit or in the for-profit sector is the is the way to begin to see change, change happen, right? And so when I began talking with Joey, I was already at a point where I was sort of looking at my involvement in this large nonprofit educational sector as itself somewhat suspect. Now, don't get me wrong. Like, I love the Academy, as John Houck can attest, like, all I talk about are esoteric books and things that I've read that, you know, can bore most people to tears. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm a creature of that higher education landscape, and I think there's tremendous, tremendous value there. But there's something, you know, there is something off a little bit in the way that it's, you know, that it sort of dominates a kind of sector of the way that artists think about and, and are trained today. And so I think that there's room for other other ways of doing it. It's not either or, it's it's both and. So, you know, my sense with inversion when Joey was talking about it, the thing that sort of stuck in the back of my mind was, hey, we could we could build this thing and maybe in in as soon as five years have an alternative to the MFA program, right? That is that is not simply 
you know, is not an exchange for it, or is, is again, is not an either or, but would be a, you know, a viable pathway for talented artists and ambitious artists to find funding, find community, find some, some dialogue and uh, some capacity for support that would help their careers advance. And uh, which is, I think, what a lot of people expect from their educational programs that they, that they enter into. And so that was part of the, part of, let's say, the motivation uh, on my, my side for, you know, really, really seeing what Joey was trying to do from a sort of a new economic model. I should also say that after more than a decade, I was sort of like done with the nonprofit model, right? I think that there's a sort of, we hold, there was a sort of sensibility in the, in the art and cultural sector that you hold up nonprofits because they are mission driven as sort of on their own ethically sound. And when you work in them long enough, you realize that it's just, you know, that there is many compromises within the nonprofit sector as there are within the commercial sector as well. And in some cases, the commercial sector is more kind of, let's say, honest about the way that it operates. So I couldn't uh, continue to harbor the illusion that just because someone is working at a nonprofit that it has some sort of inherent goodness to it <laughs> and uh, and creating a, a commercial company that that you know, will be tested by the market and, you know, will be tested by the value it claims to produce for its clients and for the people that it works for seemed like a very clean way of working going forward rather than the more kind of soft way that nonprofit organizations uh, make the case for themselves and for the people that they serve. Yeah, I think the dynamic is really interesting, like coming both from within and outside of the art world, because I think that, you know, a lot of artists would probably feeling like there are a lot of broken systems and structures and are, you know, craving something new or like, what, what does that look like? But on the other hand, like the art world can also be very like insulated or you, you almost like need to have this real like connection within in order to create anything of impact that could actually, you know, potentially change what is like a very in a lot of ways traditional and like slow moving world. So I just think the the experiences and the dynamic that you both bring um, to this is really interesting. Just to give listeners a sort of basis for understanding what that looks like or what inversion art actually provides. Um, I was just hoping to summarize the types of support that just like practically that inversion art offers. So feel free to like correct me if I'm wrong or help fill in the gaps here. But it seems like there are two branches of support. There's studio management and then this accelerator program. And the studio management provides a dedicated artist liaison, um, provides administrative support and access to things like legal, accounting, marketing services across a period of five or so years. And then the accelerator is a three-month program, uh, starting with a 10-day in-person convening where artists that have been invited or selected to be a part of Inversions Arts cohorts will hear from guest speakers, uh, will make art world connections, and this will result in some kind of presentation or exhibition of the artist's work, followed by this ongoing studio management. And then the thing that I think is really interesting that I wanted to dig into further is that artists will also receive an initial investment that's equivalent of up to 30% of their previous year's income. So for example, if you're an artist and you made $100,000 through your practice, Invergent Art would purchase $30,000 worth of art for their collection. And then in exchange for this sort of new partnership, artists 
are giving 15% of their annual revenue to Inversion Art over the next five years. So that's just what I've gathered from the website, but am I missing any of the key elements or did I get anything wrong there? No, I think it's, it's you did a great job and definitely we kind of think it as like two divisions to the company. Um, the only thing I would say is that during that five-year period in which the artist is sharing income with us, they are, they are receiving full studio management services, which includes, mm-hmm. you know, accounting, tax filing, legal services, you know, contract review and management, inventory management, and all kinds of other things. So everything that we offer on the studio management side of the business, the artists who go through the program, they're receiving that for the five years that they're doing the income sharing. Got it. Yeah, what really stood out to me was this shared risk or this upfront investment and what seems like a really long-term approach. There's sort of like shared risk and shared reward. And I think it's rare to see an arts organization like that that is not a nonprofit. So I wonder if you wanted to talk uh, just a little bit about this, that approach or that model um, in terms of like thinking long-term and um, distributing the risk. The income share is also only on the commercial revenue to a studio. So if an artist is, and it's revenue related to the artistic practice. So if someone is teaching or has other revenue and things like that, we're not sharing in that. So it's not a sort of total mm-hmm. take. It's, it's, it's based primarily on the commercial revenue that the, that the, the artist is bringing in uh, through sales or licensing or other sort of projects that are related to uh, what it is that they're doing. But Joey, go ahead with the risk distribution of, of Inversion Arts model. When this idea first sort of popped up in 2020, you know, like the immediate thought was, okay, there would just be like some sort of payback mechanism or, you know, income sharing or what have you would be like the central source of returns. And it was just clear that that was just going to further hamstring the artists, right? I mean, you know, you can give them $30,000, but if you're taking $15,000 over the next five years, you know, uh, and, 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 and in particular, not providing them with any support during that time, you know, first off, it's, it's just, it's not a super pro artist model. Um, I don't think. And also, I I spoke to another YC founder who has a company that provides a a very expensive upfront service in exchange for income sharing over a period of years. And he said that even though people like absolutely love the program and provide like glowing reviews when they come out of it, that, you know, at three years later, when they're still paying that back, if they're not receiving value anymore, they're very bitter about it and sort of resent that, you know, that they're still paying for this, even though, you know, it might be a totally fair price tag to pay. It's just a perception issue. So, you know, as I was talking to artists and sort of interviewing them, you know, first off, I wanted to find a model that was as close. I think YC is an incredibly pro-entrepreneur organization. I mean, I think they treat their founders great. I think their terms are super fair. Um, and I really wanted to honor that. I also wanted to honor the fact that, you know, I got into that program just by filling out an application. I didn't know anybody there. And so the fact that, we, you know, we're going to have an open call, things like that, like all of these things were like super important, I think, to maintaining the spirit of, you know, having a pro-artist opportunity and organization. As we were looking at it, it was like, okay, you know, I think the, the real upside potential here is not necessarily on the income sharing side. You know, we don't expect these artists to go to like million dollars in revenue in the in the five years that we're working with them, and um, so that the the opportunity for really kind of outsized results for us is in collecting art from the right kinds of artists, and like you know the potential of that art to appreciate over time. But you know other things that I kind of discovered as I was researching the market was like you know the artist pension trust and other like attempts that had been made to sort of create you know um, funds for artists or different things. And and one of the problems they had was just that there was no operating capital with which to support the costs of maintaining 
of those programs. So like, you know, you have to pay storage, you have to pay for appraisals, you have to pay for all kinds of things. As you, if, you're, if you're collecting art, there's a lot of expenses that go along with it. And if there was not also some model where money is coming into the company, it was just going to be incredibly risky. And you were just going to depend solely on this idea that some of this art was going to become very valuable. And that just seemed inherently like too risky and also just did not provide, you know, a way like the company was just going to have to like constantly be raising money and, you know, all of that just like didn't look very good to me. So, you know, kind of came around to this idea like, okay, I think the, the model here is a combination of collecting and some income share. And what I wanted to do was like, how can I get the income share as low as possible for as short a period as possible? And so we put, you know, a bunch of numbers into spreadsheets and sort of calculated this and ultimately came around to this idea that, okay, the right amount is to invest 30% of what the artist earned last year. That felt like a large enough amount to be exciting, right? It doesn't matter what kind of artist you are, getting a 30% bump on what you made the prior year is pretty good. Um, so, you know, wanted the amount that we invest to be as high as we could make it within reason and, and then be able to keep the income sharing period and amount as low as we could. And then because of my conversation with, you know, this other founder about the income sharing stuff, I, you know, I came around to this idea that, okay, during the period of the income sharing, we have to provide services that make the artists feel like they're still getting a lot of value as we have this five-year engagement. So yeah, it was just like, I mean, it, it took months and months and months of, of talking to people and crunching numbers and trying to figure out like, how, how can we make this equitable? And then, you know, we went back out and talked to artists and like, I'm thinking income share of, you know, 12%, 15, 20, just like, you know, bouncing things around and just getting lots of feedback. And, and ultimately, you know, 15% is, is where we landed. You know, people felt like that was very fair. I, I mean, I had artists say like, I think you could charge more than that, to be honest with you. But, you know, like I said, we want to attract the best artists we possibly can. So, you know, we tried to make it as friendly as we could. And, you know, if we've crunched the numbers correctly, this model works great. You know, we'll, we'll have to find that out as things progress, but you know, it, it feels very fair to all involved. So, you know, I'm always trying to look for like win, win, win models. And, and, and I, I hope that's what we've got. I'm really impressed that also through that five-year period, everyone still has access to all of the studio management resources with like legal accounting, marketing, admin support. Like I just did all of my taxes and stuff. And Nicole and I, whenever we do a finance episode through the podcast, we kind of break down our own finances and I do like an expense pie sheet and easily like 18% of my annual expenses just go towards that type of admin stuff. So it's actually quite a deal in my my point of view as someone who is not a member of this, but like that does sound really fair. And like, I don't know, my partner is a musician and like his manager gets 10%. And like that, I think in many industries, that's pretty standard, but uh, it sounds really like there's just a lot in exchange for that during that time. I appreciate that. We should also say that there's a lot of kind of like baseline services that I think, you know, on the face of it, ha have a lot of value for artists in terms of things like legal review and inventory management and accounting and tax and all this kind of stuff. But I think that where we've found like a lot of what we end up doing on the management side has been more the kind of targeted strategic outreach, some of the some of the kind of you know the things that go beyond let's say the let's say the 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 professional operations of the studio that are really designed or meant to to free up the artist's mental space to be able to think more intently about the things that are important to them or the things that are interesting to them or the things that are going to sort of push their creative stuff along and this is where 
you know, I, John, I think you're probably, I'm going to sort of hop in here with some of the things that we've worked on, but it's been incredibly gratifying to me to have sort of, a, sort of regular conversations with John that go to really what's at the core of his practice. Like what, what is, what is, you know, informing the paintings, the photography, the work. And then, you know, I go away and I think about, all right, so that John doesn't have to be thinking about this, how can I be thinking about who are the other people in the world that might share some of these interests and curiosities? Who are the people that we might put John in dialogue with or have conversations with in order to sort of, who knows, right? Like who knows what comes of that? I mean, it's like, it's not like what collector necessarily or what specific gallery or curator, although that's all part of it in terms of thinking about who are strategically within the art world context might be useful or might be important to be a supporter of that work. But it's also just how do we build the kind of larger, at one point someone put to me this kind of like larger board of directors, right? For, you know, for, or like board of trustees for an individual practice, like people who are sort of brought together who can really, you know, be interested at their core about what an artist is doing and then can, might be relied upon for another couple of introductions. People who are in the, in a, in a place to, to provide that soft power support, so to speak. And that I think I find a lot of gratification in, in doing that because it's kind of like solving these interesting aesthetic intellectual puzzles. But also when it when it works, it's like, you know, it's it's uh, it, it's a lot of fun to, to see coming to fruition. John, you want to pass the baton over to you on that one? <laughs> Absolutely. No, thanks for introducing that. Because for me, you know, the, the financial aspect and that kind of studio management stuff is is helpful. But I'm also a very, um, I think, having been a software engineer, I like to control that stuff as well. So I've worked with Inversion Art for about a year now officially. And the things that have been really helpful are the things that Jonathan is, is pointing out in terms of kind of a intellectual framing for, for my practice. Uh, and I've had a number of kind of transitions over the years and Inversion Art's really helped me kind of navigate those. Um, <clears throat> one thing I've realized being an artist and working with galleries for over a decade now is over time I've noticed that galleries are representing generally more and more artists and they will give you a lot of attention when you have a solo show, but the minute that show's over, they're on to the next artist. There's just this rapid run through of artists and you know, they're your best friend for the six weeks your shows up and then they kind of forget about you. And so, you know, I saw Jonathan give a talk at Freeze about inversion art a few years ago. And I thought that would be fascinating to have somebody who isn't afraid of the elephant in the room, the art market, and speaking about money and actually um, aspiring to, to make a living at this, which is such a kind of conversation one can't have in grad school or the Whitney program. Uh, anything <laughs> professional is kind of, um, we just pretend that doesn't exist. So so that, that piqued my interest in inversion art. And then I met Jonathan and Joey in LA at a party and met them in person. I was like, oh, this this is great. Like Joey has such incredible business acumen and Jonathan is, you know, such a fascinating intellectual as well as a, a business-minded uh, person. And it just it just provided this whole other context for my work and for my practice as an artist and my studio. And like I said, it really helped it kind of expand beyond just those moments when you have a show and the focus is on you. It allowed me to kind of develop new relationships and outreach to people beyond just that that time when you have a show. So that's that's been the most valuable thing for me, I would say. John, thank you for that. I, I want to be really like specific about this too, because I think one of the things that we ask the artists that we work with, one of the questions that we 
we present is 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 not just what gallery do you want to show with or you know what what's the price point for the work that you wanted to reach or you know i mean those those things are are almost really secondary the primary question we're often asking is what does success look like to you right like what is the well how is it how do you define it and i've and i've now realized even more in these conversations with both artists that we work with and just artists that we've been reaching out to and having conversations about inversion with the question is sort of where do you what recognition is important to you and where do you want that recognition coming from and you know who are your artistic heroes not just within your field or within the visual arts but who are the sort of creative heroes you know that are still working and active and are, and are doing things that you would love to meet or you'd love to be in dialogue with that you feel like are important for you as as part of a model of what you do and so and I continually have that conversation with these artists but so for John one of those intellectual heroes happened to be a scholar based at the University of Pennsylvania for a long time named Kaja Silverman who for some generation, maybe a generation younger than mine, it won't be as obvious, but in the 1990s and early 2000s, Kaja Silverman was a sort of giant of the academy and had written very eloquently about film and photography and the arts alongside of a whole very rigorous discourse on psychoanalysis and vision and visuality and was very much part of this this dialogue that was going on um, in the in the 1990s and the 2000s. And she's still obviously very vibrant and important and has been writing these very interesting books on photography. And when John said, oh, you know, I'm really interested in Kaja Silverman's work. And I asked John, was like, well, you, have you ever had a conversation with Kaja? And John was like, no, not yet. Have not had any chance to sort of, you know, reach out. And this is one of the dynamics that I think is very important for us structurally is that it is much easier for me to reach out on someone else's behalf, right? To ask somebody, hey, I'm working with this amazing artist who's got an incredible reputation and does this really interesting, rigorous work, and I can be effusive about John in my introduction, in my pursuit of Kaja, and say, you know, would you be interested in having this conversation? Could I put you two in touch? I think you'd really, you know, have a lot to talk about. I think it would be really interesting. Having a third party do that, just like when you hire a lawyer to negotiate for you or you hire someone else to come into any of these scenarios to be the third party to help, you know, bring connections together or to navigate those those relationships structurally is really important and it is a lot easier for me to do it than it would be for John or a lot of artists or a lot of us to sort of reach out on our own and be like, you know, fanboy or fangirl and say, oh, I love, you know, your work and I really, you know, can we have a conversation? It's just like a lot of people, you know, retract with a sort of sense of cringe to that. But, you know, I love doing that, right? Like, and, and being able to make those types of connections and put those conversations together is amazing because it's just, it's a, it's a way of one building those relationships, but it's also something that you realize it's just like, it's so much easier for, for a, a, a sort of quote unquote objective or third party to do it because writing those emails, following up, trying to figure out how it's going to work ends up being a lot of mental energy and it's incredibly fraught mental energy for the artist to be engaged in. But for inversion art, for us, it's just not nearly as fraught or difficult because we feel like we're doing it on the artist's behalf and it's and it could be a really important connection to make. Um, and so that was that. that's a concrete example, but I just wanted to sort of put that out there as like one of the things that one is enjoyable and, and two is like really productive. 
Yeah, having more people in your corner is definitely beneficial. I'm curious for John, what did you feel an organization like Inversion Art could offer that you maybe wouldn't be able to manage on your own? You started talking a little bit about what attracted you to it, but I'm, I'm curious to know more about that. Yeah, I think, as Jonathan mentioned, you know, the connection with Katja Silverman was a kind of dream come true and and something that is very delicate to kind of approach on your own as an artist to approach a thinker or intellectual like that. I I wouldn't really know exactly how to go about it. And so Jonathan was able to kind of navigate that for me. And that was incredibly helpful. And as Jonathan mentioned, I have this solo show up in New York right now at Candace Mady Gallery. And I'd say two things around that solo show right now that Inversion Art really helped me with are, um, number one is PR. Like uh, my gallerist was telling me there that, you know, now these days, like if you don't have a PR firm, you don't even get a review. Like there's just this new kind of expectation that a gallery has a PR firm involved. And that is this other intermediary that's completely necessary in order to get any kind of coverage of your show. So that that was a surprise for me. And, you know, in the past, the PR firms I've interacted with, they would they would write a press release, and I'd be kind of frustrated because it wasn't great. And then we'd go back and forth. And it, it was just a very trying kind of experience. But with Jonathan on board, and and Candace at the gallery, um, the owner of the gallery, Candace Mady, like they collaborated and created this incredible press release, as well as managed all the PR, you know, they would keep telling me about these meetings they were having with the PR company. And I was just like, well, I'm so glad somebody's having those meetings, I don't have to be in them. And I know I'm well represented in in those meetings. So that was a really helpful kind of added dimension that I didn't foresee. The other one I would mention is prior to this show, I was showing with a gallery in Chelsea. And I worked with them for about five years. It, it worked really well in the beginning, and then the relationship started to kind of go south for a number of reasons. And, you know, having Jonathan and Joey to talk about that potential gallery transition and the pros and cons of it was really helpful. Like my friends give me one particular kind of advice, but Jonathan and Joey, it's almost like um, it's like game theory or something. There's a lot of like really amazing kind of like points they bring up that I wouldn't have considered that come from a a more business kind of minded perspective, a more maybe, I hate to use the word rational, but you know, like a more rational perspective and, and just opened up another dimension to this, this really important decision of like, who do you work with as an artist? What, you know, and what does that relationship mean? And are there other people that might be better for you? And, and how do you, how do you navigate that whole, that whole realm? It's, it's a really tricky thing to navigate. And that's, yeah, the other really specific thing that they they helped me a lot with was was through that transition to a new gallery. I wrote a, uh, I think, a, a opinion piece for Art Review a number of years ago in which I decried the fact that so many artists think about the relationship with their galleries as an amorous one, as like a marriage or like an amorous partnership of some sort. And saying that, like, if that is the if that is the reigning metaphor for what you think of this business, which is ultimately a business relationship, right? That it's like got this kind of contractual thing, that's not good business, right? That you're not going to be making the right kinds of decisions if you're thinking about the relationship with your gallerist as a marriage or as a relationship that then is like has you have a breakup or you know you're in a tiff or you know you're sleeping in separate bedrooms or something like that. I mean, it's a, that's that's not a helpful way to think about it the relationship with the gallery is incredibly important, right? And it's very important that the gallerist can represent the artist's work and and, and represent their careers. And, and uh, you know, there are amazing gallerists out there. I think Candace 
um, is doing a, a fantastic job with this new work of John's and she's just uh, incredibly transparent and she's a joy to kind of work with and like gets the work at a very fundamental level, right? I mean, she really, really understands what, what John is doing and the relationship to the, the earlier practice. Being able to be a part of helping to kind of see the benefits of finding finding a way towards a gallery that's going to be able to represent the work like that is really something that's important important to us, but also recognizing that like, listen, these are business relationships, right? Like you're expecting certain things from from these people. And if you're not if you're not being treated well by your gallery, right? And if it feels like you're in a bad relationship, then <laughs> you've got to do something about that, right? Like, and so part of it is just figuring out how to get the best outcome, not just the short term, but the long term. Yeah, just a just a brief anecdote, anecdote to support that too. I would say like, in all the art sales I've had over the years, I've never received a single tax document from a gallery. I've never got a 1099. I've never signed a, a single uh, contract for anything. So there is this way in which that relationship is... While it is a business relationship, there's zero of the kind of standard contractual things you would expect in a business relationship. And so it can get confusing and feel like an amorous relationship, as Jonathan is saying. And it's just the most bizarre business. And I think that's why when I saw Jonathan speak and met Joey, I was like, wow, there's this other dimension where these people are creating this kind of thing that fits in with the art world, but provides a little more structure around those things, around contracts and a little bit more of like, let's set the expectation and, and do this above boards rather than just doing this all with a handshake and and hope it all works out. So this is where the nonprofit model is really important, right? Like you can be mission driven, right? You can be driven by some things that are complementary to or additional to bottom line work. But at the end of the day, every functioning, successful nonprofit is a business and functions with revenues and expenses and HR departments and, you know, and is trying to do things as professionally as possible. They don't think about what they are doing as, you know, they don't model it on some other set of human relationship that that are meant to shade over, let's say, the less than reputable business dealings. And... That was, I think, one of the fundamental kind of values that Joey really brought to this from his days at YC and that I really appreciate is that we wanted everything that we did to be totally transparent, right? We wanted everything that we did to be contract-based. We wanted to encourage um, everything to be upfront, negotiated, be very clear with what we expected from ourselves, what we expected from the artists, and just not to not to go into it with a model of like, we are patronizing the artist and imagining that they are some sort of delicate flower that needs to be protected and spared all of the the difficulties of the of the crazy wide world out there which frankly is just bs but you still hear it nonstop from collectors from institutions and everything that have this this kind of ingrained sensibility and my experience with artists is that, you know, you know, 95% of the ones that I talk to are smarter than most of the people that are working in these institutions and doing these other things. And they can manage a lot of this. It's just that like what they've decided they're going to focus their time and attention on are these sort of incredible act activities of creative production. And, you know, I'd rather 
follow behind them and help kind of shape and direct where it is that they might want to go and help focus their vision rather than come from the other side and be like, here's what we're going to do. You know, here's how it works. So you just, just relax. We'll take care of it all. You don't have to sign that. You don't worry about it. Don't read that. Don't worry about it. It's like, we'll, we'll, we'll take care of you. Right? Like how unbelievably patronizing, right? Like it's just incredible. So we never, we just didn't want to do any of that. And to be fair, there are a lot of people in the professional commercial and nonprofit art world who don't act that way, who have very transparent, very, you know, are very forward thinking. And so I'm not trying to tar the entire, the entire world out there, but it is a, let's say it's a holdover from a, a kind of quasi aristocratic patronage mentality, which is amazingly persistent from the 19th century all the way through to today. It's just like Y Combinator in, in this way. Like I, I love it when things start to happen that remind me of YC because I feel like it means we're on the right track. But you know, one of the most valuable things that you get from YC is office hours with the partners, right? These people have built big businesses. They understand the market. They understand the players in the market. And to sit down with them for 30 minutes or an hour and explain to them what's going good and what's going bad in the business and for them to give you tailored advice is like one of the most valuable things that you get out of that. And then, you know, I, I, when I was going through the program back in 2011 you know i was having chatting with paul graham and you know explaining to him some things that were going on he goes you know who would really like this uh matt mullenweg the founder of wordpress and he shoots him an email and you know a, a day later i'm on the phone with matt matt talks to me for 15 minutes and then goes yeah this sounds awesome i'll I'd, I'd be happy to put in fifty thousand dollars and you know all of a sudden the founder of wordpress is invested in my company and that's exactly the kind of thing that we're aiming for here is like you know these opportunities to sit down and speak to people who you know can share an outside perspective can share their experience either whether it's my experience from the business world or jonathan's experience in the art world or whatever you know our ability to sort of like provide a different viewpoint you know i think can be really valuable and then you know and then we have that talk and they say you know oh i'm really trying i'm struggling with this and we're like oh you know what you know who could really help you with that so and so and then we make that introduction and so like, you know, we're, we're definitely seeing that that, you know, whereas those things were super, super valuable for me as a founder going through that program, that it's, it's turning out that those are, those are also some of the most high value things that we're doing with our artists as well. Yeah, there's so many pressures that artists face nowadays just to wear all the hats, you know, beyond their creative practice. Um, we are expected to be very entrepreneurial, to be your own marketing manager, your own accountant, your own studio manager. And so I think you know, having a network of support is extremely valuable, but also just that, like we're used to having these really candid conversations about these topics on the podcast, but I remember like a big part of the impetus for starting it was just that these things still felt very taboo and like something that seemed very delicate to approach even amongst artist friends, like to talk transparently about like how much are you pricing your work for or like how are you navigating this like situation and even within these kind of business partnerships, working with galleries, for example, um, it can still feel very delicate to approach these subjects. So I think there's something very refreshing about just sort of laying this all out on the table and saying like, you know, we're we're investing in your career for the long term, you know, let's have these conversations about the business side of it and to just be very transparent about like these realities that we're all facing now as artists and I'm curious how you see because we've been talking a little bit about this already how you see inversion art partnering or working together with some of this existing art world infrastructure like museums and galleries and if that is the aim of most of the artists that you're working with or if you know there are some that are maybe on these alternative paths or not necessarily interested in that um, type of art world recognition, um, like what are you observing just in the artists you're working with and how have those, how have you been navigating those relationships? 
I kind of alluded to this before, but every artist has a different idea about what they what they want to be doing with their practice. And so we really take the lead from the artist first in terms of what kind of recognition they are looking for, what kind of context they are looking for for their work and, and what is inform, informing the practice. And so that that is always primary. As I've told a, a lot of people, it's like, we don't, we don't have this playbook. It's not like you come work with us and we like hand over this binder and it's like, okay, here's step number one, step number two, and create this cookie cutter approach to everybody ultimately, you know, going to show with one of the big five galleries or something like that. Because you know, as much as that can be desirable, you also talk to a number of those artists or other people who've talked to artists who are at these big five galleries and they're like, we never talked to anybody there. Like, I don't get any support there. It's like, great. They're, you know, we have these shows and the price point is at a certain thing. And I'm getting, you know, depending on who you are, you might get a you know big upfront advance to open a new studio and have studio managers paid for and other all these other types of things. But, you know, those are businesses too. And so, as John said, the kind of like, for six months, you're a best friend. And I mean, sorry, for six weeks, you're a best friend. And then you're, and then you're kind of, you know, out in the wilderness for a little bit is, is something I think a lot of artists experience. We are support for the artist in whatever the artist defines as success for themselves. We help the artists shape the vision for what that success could be. And if galleries and museums and other institutional partners are part of that vision of success, we work with them towards that, the, the achievement of that vision. Um, we, are not, we don't push any artists towards any specific gallery or any sort of specific commercial model. We have artists who have no current gallery representation, but a lot of institutional interest and recognition. So we spend a lot of our time on the telephone with curators and registrars and insurance people and shippers and, you know, helping to get shows mounted or, you know, get fabricators shipping work from one place to another so that it can be in certain places on time for certain shows, helping artists assess whether to say yes to certain opportunities or to say no to certain opportunities in order to, you know, ensure that they've got the time that they need to do things. I guess to your question, Nicole, like, all of the above, <laughs> like, you know, the, the, as a concrete example, you know, we, we had an artist who did a, um, an institutional exhibition and I'm not going to put names into this, um, just to, to keep things above board, but the institution, great institution, great leadership had a sort of curatorial team that was a little bit in over its head and we stepped into support. We ended up, you know, building 3D models of the that the that the institution didn't have, helping the artist curate what the show would be. Transmitted architectural drawings to the um, very competent um, production team that the museum contracts with, so that they could build walls for this show. Um, you know, get the install ready to go. Make sure you know wall texts were edited and and designed, and you know, basically sort of did a whole bunch of that kind of production work on behalf of this because this show was important to that artist and we wanted to make sure it happened for them. And it, you know, ended up being a, a great success and a, and, a, and, a, and a great opportunity. So it really depends on sort of what the, what the specificities are of what somebody is, what, what an artist is kind of doing and with whom. And we are, we are there to support in whatever way we can. I'm also curious, like with any sort of new or radical idea, there are going to be skeptics or... Um, people that are like slower to adopt. Have you been meeting concerns from like various art world players, or like I I'm just curious, what has that been? Every, every, everybody, <laughs> <laughs> everyone. <laughs> I, I think um, 
you know, that's, yeah, there's, there's various different types of examples of this. But one thing I'll say is that, you know, as um, John alluded to, like artists are just not used to signing any kind of agreements. And so even just from the artist perspective, like we've had artists that we've had multiple phone calls with, we can tell they really like what we're doing, you know, and they will literally tell us like, I need this really bad. Like, I, I really need this service. But like, I've never signed a contract in my life, let alone something with a two-year commitment. And frankly, it just scares the shit out of me. Um, and so, um, you know, like that's certainly something that, you know, that, that we've seen is that, you know, artists are just like totally not used to committing themselves in this way. And um, for us, you know, there has to be some kind of term because, you know, we, we invest a lot of effort up front. And a lot of times we're doing it, in, you know, in an effort to professionalize an artist's studio, get them contacts that are not going to quote unquote, like pay off for months or even like another year or so, you know, like even if we introduce them to an interesting new gallerist, you know, they're probably not going to have a show for a year, you know, and so, you know, we have to have some sort of term so that the investment that we make in the artist's career has time to, to sort of develop. Um, but, you know, like certainly this is just totally different and new and, and you know, it's, it's not something people have seen before. So, you know, there's going to be both skepticism and hesitancy on the part of some of the artists. We've had people tell us like, oh, you know, I think what you guys are doing is interesting, but, you know, I, I, I couldn't invest in this because I, I don't want to be seen as profiting off of artists. And you're like, how do you provide services to somebody without making a profit? I guess like they just think that like artists should be treated like charity cases for the rest of eternity. And it's just, it's, it's quite frustrating really, because it's like, you know, the only way that artists are going to, you know, artists are entrepreneurs, they deserve good business solutions. And if you keep treating them like, you know, these like delicate creatures that you cannot make any money off of, you know, you will never be able to build those solutions. And so it's, it's, it's quite frustrating because I think, you know, yeah, there's just this sort of, um, it's still taboo in some ways to talk about the market and other things. Um, but, you know, it's, it's the reason why progress is so slow. Um, you know, like the art sector in terms of like solutions for artists, uh, you know, as entrepreneurs is like just like tragically behind like almost every other sector. And part of it is because, you know, people just have these like weird antiquated views about what is the ethical way to support an artist. And so you can have artists that are like, oh, my God, this is amazing. I need this. And then we have people say like, no, I think like what you're doing is just wrong. And we're just like, why the artists we're working with think that this is awesome. <laughs> so I don't know why, you know. Yeah, that's so interesting that the skepticism is coming from the artists themselves. I honestly am a little surprised by that. Maybe it's just because a lot of the artists that we talk with are very like career minded or business oriented, but I would expect more maybe skepticism on the institutional side, or I was just curious, you know, with other organizations that you've worked with, whether you're hearing that, but um, I guess I could understand some hesitancy from the artist perspective. Well, we care we care most about the artists, so that's why we're <laughs> that's why we're bringing up their their critiques. Sure. I would say that we also I say overwhelmingly also yeah. we 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 have received you know the most positive responses from from artists as well, right? The the I mean, John, maybe you know you can speak to this too, but uh, I don't know if you've you know heard critique from from elsewhere, but I'd be curious like what the you know, what the sensibility from your side has been, both your own, but also conversations you've had with, with other people about this this as a new model. Yeah, I think it is a bit of a, a bit of a shock for artists to have to sign a contract, actually, as, as you brought up, like it, it's... That's so crazy to me. <laughs> yeah, they, they just don't, I, I didn't, you know, know how to do that. It, within the art context, I've done it in other parts of my life, but within the art world, it's just uh, not, not really done. So that, 
that definitely seems to be one one critique I've heard, you know, and the the other thing I think that's that's been frustrating, I guess, is galleries can be incredibly protective. They don't even want you to be in a particular group show unless it sort of fits in with their agenda as a gallerist and that it's in a group show at a gallery that they're friends with the gallery owner. I mean, there's just all these different layers of negotiating and friend circles that kind of overlap in the art world. And so galleries, I think, you know, maybe rightfully so in some cases are are incredibly protective of their artists and want to control everything that they do. And so introducing another party into that is, is sometimes tricky. You know, galleries are like, well, we don't want anybody else involved in this. We want to pull all the strings and, you know, uh, we don't, want to have you sign a contract either and have you locked up in this thing so so galleries i think there's a certain flexibility they gain in keeping artists kind of in this state of limbo where there's no there's no contract you're just hanging out and you can be employed as they need you uh i I don't think it's quite that that cynical but but yeah they they have a certain approach to business and uh yeah i think too i've you know i've thought a lot about like i I did the Whitney program, which is uh, like a Western Marxist focused kind of grad program. And after that program, I got into a professional development program in New York uh, with a with a cultural uh, organization in New York. I, I won't name them, but you know, after doing this this year long grad program in kind of Marxist influenced uh, critical theory. I suddenly was being told like you have to have a 30 second elevator pitch and you have to create a a board of things you want like if you want a bmw you make a picture of a bmw like all this stuff and i was just like these worlds are so far apart how can i bridge (laughs) this gap i just said marxist what do you mean bmw (laughs) (laughs) yeah it, it was just like a a cold shower i was just like oh my god what am i doing in this place but but you know it did it did kind of uns, like get me thinking like why why is you know why is this Marxist thing completely ignoring the lived conditions of artists in the moment and this other program is too caught up in the kind of very capital, capitalist world we're living in and is there something in between and I think for me that's where inversion art kind of came in is because it's it's really based on relationships I guess like. So far, the help that I've been given is really specific to what to what I need as an artist and where I'm at in my career. And that's that's been the biggest helpful thing for me is that it's very relational and specific kind of advice, not not like here's your 30 second elevator pitch and you have to go rehearse this. Yeah, it just seems like so much of the art world serves to disconnect or separate artists from their work or from their markets, whereas inversion art seems to really embrace artists as these equal partners. And I did want to talk about this sort of distinction or difference between like the value of the work, the art itself, and the value in the artists as these like cultural producers and like the the creative labor of the artist, because I feel like that's really important to the way that inversion art is like viewing its equity um, or investments. And I wanted to mention the page that you have on your website talking about your commitment as collectors, um, because you mentioned this in the beginning, but a big part of the model is that you're like acquiring this collection, like museum worthy collection of artists work over time. And there were some 
terms specific to that that you know are meant to be very artist friendly like agreeing to hold the work for at least five years unless it's going to an institutional collection paying artists a 10 percent resale royalty on the profit of the work sold from its collection um, though never being the first to take the work to auction and so even i think just like any one of those things would be kind of like a radical approach but again just mm-hmm. that that was sort of like a footnote in inversion arts terms uh, really stood out to me And so there are various companies that we've seen that seem to focus on, you know, maybe one aspect of this, like implementing resale royalties or different ways of investing in art, like acquiring, you know, fractional shares in an artwork, for example. But I really haven't seen any that aim to invest in artists themselves. And so I was wondering if you just wanted to talk about this distinction and really like how we value artists as cultural producers and provide support for their careers long term, as opposed to like a company that's really just focused on the acquisitions or like on the value of the artworks that it's acquiring. Joey, why don't you take that? Because I, I was about to launch into like an esoteric answer. <laughs> so you should, you should provide the more straight, straight ahead. And then if there's still time, I'll come in with my very boring esoteric answer. <laughs> yeah. The, the genesis of this idea was like, uh, you know, how do we become the Y Combinator in the art world? And, you know, Y Combinator doesn't like just buy stocks, right? Like they invest in companies and then they take a very, very active role in helping those companies succeed. Um, and it's a lifelong relationship. Like I sold my YC company, like, uh, what is it now? Uh, eight years ago. And uh, I'm still in the forums like every week. And if I wanted to schedule time with one of the partners at YC just to talk about inversion art or anything that was going on in my career career like you can schedule office hours with the partners there and they don't have a stake in anything I'm doing anymore you know it's just that that's just the level of support they continue to provide to anybody who's gone through the program and is an alumni member still gets access to nearly all the same resources as when you are an active investment of theirs and so like that that model is just I think first off very pro-entrepreneur and something we wanted to mimic here Frankly, it's also like a selfish motivation, right? Like when you look at like other attempts to invest in in ultra contemporary work and work by like still living artists, it's like there was like a bunch of issues with it. First off, you know, again, like if you don't have a model that provides some immediate operating capital, you know, there's just a ton of expenses involved with it. And so you see something like Artist Pension Trust, which just could like no longer afford to pay for storage and to like hold up the promises that it made to the artists that are involved in it because it's just like, you know, the, the model itself didn't take into consideration that it was going to be very expensive to hold that work for a long time. But the other thing that, that they haven't done is like take an active role in improving outcomes, right? Like it's one thing to buy a bunch of work from some good contemporary artists. And if you believe like you have like an, a magic eye and can pick like the best ones, then sure, you might like have some, hit some home runs and make some money. But like the YC model and in fact, just the venture investing model is very much focused on like investing and then being a value add investor, like somebody who actually helps the people that you invest in make new relationships. Relationships. You know, I mean, like all the time you know, when I was running my last company, it was like, you know, when I had an investor reach out, he's like, hey, what's going on? Like, I feel like I'm not helping you enough lately. Like, what are you working on? I was like, to, to be honest, I, I need to do a cap table. I've never done one before. And it's like, it's just been nagging at me. And like, he's like, no problem. Send me like these details. I'll take care of it. And like, you know, a couple of days later, he shot me back like a perfectly done cap table, saved me all that time, did it very professionally. It was something he'd done a million times. I had never done it once. So, you know, it was just like super, it was just helpful for me and it was no skin off his back to, to provide that level of help. So I think, you know, when we think about like investing, we're, we're not, in, we're not investing in art. Like we are, yes, like um, our investment in art 
was just the most equitable model we could find for investing in artists. But like the goal was always to invest in them and their careers. It just turns out that the best way to do that, we believe, is by buying some of their work. But then, you know, working with them for a minimum of five years on trying to improve their career outcomes is part of our plan. But the but you know, it goes beyond that. Like we expect to be very much the same as YC, which is once you're an alumni of Inversion Art, you are alumni for life. And you know, you know, eight years later you could be well out of contract with us and, and no longer income sharing or anything like that but you know we're still going to be an advocate in your corner and so yeah i, I think that's that was the, the plan all along was you know um, to invest in the artists and their careers it just so happens that like buying their artwork is the best way to do that well and through that you're putting capital directly into the hands of artists but they think is important that they can then you know reinvest in their practice and that that's just the starting point for the engagement or relationship that you're about to enter into yeah. And then I mean, we haven't talked about this here, but we, you know, another part of our model is that, you know, we ask the artist to give us an option to buy more of their work over the next eight years. So, you know, if we invest in them, um, we maintain an option to buy another half a million dollars of art from them. Um, although we pay full market rate on the first batch of, um, of purchases that we make for the 30% that we buy when they get into the program, um, there is a 15% discount on the options. Um, so, you know, it allows us to like, you know, double down if we think an artist's career is really taking off we can buy some more work from them there's already a framework for doing that that they've all we've all agreed to um, which allows us to sort of like reinvest into those artists it's it's very similar to the venture model where they want their pro rata rights once they invest in you if you're going to raise another round of capital they want the right to buy enough to maintain the same amount of equity in your company as they had before um, so that that allows us to do that but it also allows the artists to come back to us at times where they need additional funding and say hey look you know i've been offered this like amazing show at this museum in germany um, the RS fee is quite low. The production budget is not going to be enough for me to do what I want to do. You know, would you guys be interested in exercising your options? You know, I, I need another $30,000. And we would just look at it and say, like, I mean, first off, this show in Germany sounds amazing. We think that's a game changer for your career. You know, we love the trajectory you're on. Yeah, sounds good. We'll buy another piece of work for $30,000, give you the funding that you need so that you can go do this show in Germany and not have to worry about that. And it's not something that we can promise that we'll do every single time, but you know, these are the sort of things that we put into place so that it becomes easier for us to provide like ongoing support and continue to invest in the artists and give them access to funding under a framework that's already easily understood um, so that everybody knows like, you know, how could this work in the future if I need some more help? And there are a lot of artists out there who have experienced exactly these types of activities from collectors, other patrons, other, you know, there, there are people out there who have helped artists finance production. There are people out there who are very mm -hmm. like collectors who are very pro artists, very um, uh, supportive long-term over careers and things like that, but it's all very piecemeal, right? And it's very relationship driven. And so I think what we're trying to do is in some sense, professionalize and institutionalize a lot of these practices and make them regular uh, for a, a wider range of relationships that we have with the artists who are going to be working with inversion rather than thinking of these things like, oh, I just, you know, I happen to get on the radar of this particularly supportive collector and now they like my work. And, you know, now, now that's great. That's great for me. Um, but, you know, I'm not going to make an introduction for anybody else. Like for us, it's like, no, we want that to grow and expand so that more and more artists could take advantage of it. 
Yeah, one other question I had is besides venture capital, are there other models that you've been looking to for inspiration or other industries potentially? I know you mentioned like improving on the artist pension trust from the past. And of course, we've been talking about the tech and venture capital space and even like the alumni networks of higher education or like coming out of a grad program. Although instead of the artist paying uh, the MFA program and then coming out with a lot of debt, you're paying the artist to participate in inversion art. So obviously there are some key differences. And uh, so I'm just curious if there are other um, models you've been looking to when developing this. You know, there are two things. One, we just consider ourselves, like even though we don't have like a bunch of in-house technology, at least not right now, like we consider ourselves a tech startup. Like um, we're like very inspired by Silicon Valley. We, you know, obviously we're building this thing with, you know, with Y Combinator in mind. We are very iterative, like we, you know, like like the model that we have was based on a lot of customer conversations and just like, you know, coming into it with an open mind and sort of like not, you know, the fact that I didn't really know how the art world worked actually I think played in our favor because I did not have all these preconceived notions about how this needed to be structured. You know, I think we just think of ourselves as like, you know, a, a kind of a scrappy startup who's like constantly changing things and trying new things. Um, and I don't know that that's really the model that like most of the other art world operates on. I think when you open a gallery, there is a little bit of a playbook there's an expectation you're going to operate in this way or that way and there's not a ton of innovation that happens there i mean there may be you know maybe you're a little bit more tech forward and you're using a, a more interesting inventory management system or you're using some tech tools in order to make your gallery more efficient but in general i don't think there's a ton of innovation on the model side and for us it's like we're always you know we, we still to this day like have questions like hey are we doing this the right way should we think about maybe changing this little aspect or or what have you. Um, and then I think the other thing that we do is like, we like constantly consider opportunities that are like outside the box of like what galleries would normally operate in. I mean, most of the galleries are like, hey, I sell paintings or I sell photography or I sell both. And, you know, I have collectors and I focus on this. Um, but when an artist thinks like, oh, I'm, I'm interested in, you know, connecting with this other type of person or collaborating on this project or doing this other thing, if it kind of falls out of the, like the wheelhouse of the gallery, oftentimes they're like, well, listen, like not only do, can I, do I not really know how to help you with that, but, you know, that feels like a departure from what's making me money. Like, can't we just like keep focusing on the paintings or whatever it is? Um, and so a lot of times they encourage the artist to just like, you know, um, keep you know, on this treadmill of creating the same kind of work and the artist wants to branch out and, you know, the gallery doesn't know how to help them do that, but it's also not totally in the, the gallery's best interest. So, you know, a lot of times they just like not helpful or, or won't be helpful. The artists sometimes ask us like, well, you know, don't you think you should only get a percentage of the things that like you bring in? And we're like, no, because like, we're going to follow you wherever you want to go and help you with whatever you want to be helped with. And we don't want to like sit here and pick and choose like, oh yeah, well, you want to do that project? Well, sorry, you're on your own on that one. And so, you know, we, we kind of go where they want to go. And they're, like, they're, we just, we look at all kinds of weird and new opportunities. We're like, what brands might you want to partner with? What tech platforms do you find interesting? What, you know, what are some things that you would want to do outside of the scope of what you, you know, you normally believe were possible? And so like right now, as an example, we're working on a project with a, a company um, out of LA called AshareX. It's a fractional um, auction house. Um, and so what they do is um, you can go on there. Let's say they put up a lot for that's, you know, valued at a million dollars or opening bids are a million dollars. And they say, you know, do we have a million dollars? You know, and, you know, certainly one individual could raise their hand and say, you know, and, and it all happens online, but, you know, digitally raise their hand and say, yeah, I, I, I want to buy this for a million bucks. And they said, you know, do I hear 1.1 million? And what they allow is for people to say, oh, 
um, I would pay 1.1 million for this lot, but I only have $10,000. And as long as there's 110 people who are willing to pay $10,000 and are willing to pay the $1.1 million price, they aggregate all those people together and those people can win the lot and then own shares in the lot. So they're kind of like masterworks in that they're fractionalizing high value assets and specifically fine art, except for that they don't have the same kind of management model as, as masterworks. They don't charge ongoing annual fees. They're not the ones determining when to sell the work. It only takes a 51% vote of the shareholders of a work to decide to sell it. Um, so you truly do own shares in the work and you, you know, you can, you know, theoretically with 51% have a controlling stake in when that art gets liquidated. So it's a different model. And, you know, when we met them in Miami for Art Week, they, you know, um, I actually, I was just hoping to pitch their CEO on maybe investing in the company. Alan is a great guy and has a long history in the family office space. And I thought, you know, he could be an interesting investor given that he was playing in, in you know, building this art company. And the first thing he said when he came in was like, how do you feel about like putting together a collection of work by your artists and having that be a lot that goes up on HRX? And, you know, I said, I think that's like super interesting because I'm sitting here watching Masterworks and other companies in the space, like all they ever buy is Picassos and, you know, other blue chip works and they make these shares and allow people to invest in the space. But like most of the appreciation has already happened to a Picasso. So like, you know, you might hope for like 8%, 12%, 15 or at the very high end, 20, 25% returns year over year from buying into a Picasso. Um, you know, we're playing in this like ultra contemporary space because we just think it's like super exciting first off to support artists earlier in their careers. But also this is where like the venture style returns might happen, right? Like, you know, one of these days, John's paintings might, you know, 30 X in value. And certainly that's what we're hoping for. Um, Not might, so, will. You know, will. Yes. <laughs> um, and so, you know, we are, we're, we're placing bets that that's what, that that's going to happen. And that's not an area where fractional owners have had any opportunity to invest. Um, and so when he proposed that, we said like, oh man, that would be really exciting. Like we, you know, not only are they the first fractional auction platform, which is already pioneering, you know, and sort of democratizing funding in the arts and allowing people to invest in art who can't afford a $50,000 painting, but there's this whole other aspect of like no access to ultra contemporary for those fractional investors. There's no other platform that was making ultra contemporary work available. You know, we have basically taken six of our artists. We've curated 10 pieces from those six artists, put it into one single lot that's going to go up for auction at HRX. And it's going to give people for, you know, the opportunity for as little as $500 to invest in a small portfolio of like, you know, hand curated, you know, highly selective investable artists, 10 diversified works across six diversified artists. So it's like a portfolio play. Like, I don't think that that's an opportunity that, that any gallery would have thought to put together. And so, yeah, we, I mean, we definitely, um, I don't know that we sit there all the time thinking about like applying other new models from other companies to our own model, but we're always exploring new opportunities that are outside of the box. And, you know, this is just an example of one that we put together. And and if it, you know, if, if the sale is successful, we're going to put about, you know, $200,000 in the hands of our artists. So yeah, I mean, that, that kind of stuff is exciting to us. And, you know, we're always just sort of on the lookout for like, what is something new and unique that, you know, that we can bring to the artists that maybe other people hadn't thought of. Yeah, I'll just, I want to uh, add to that. I think that we are not a talent agency, but there is a aspect to that kind of, that kind of organization, that kind of outreach, which is a model that I think people have looked at as being appealing or as a possibility within the art and cultural sector as well. And I think that the, 
you know, the way the economics of a sort of talent agency that focuses on media, entertainment and sports is very different than one that would focus on, you know, visual arts and cultural products of one sort or another. But I think there is something very valuable about the idea of looking beyond a specific field, right? Like looking beyond the museum, gallery, art fair system and say, what are the other avenues for visibility? What are the other opportunities for exposure? What are the other places to find recognition and peer networks that are satisfying and valuable for and, and sustainable for an artist's career? I think we're very willing to experiment in that in that role. And, you know, I think for me personally, I have all sorts of unorthodox ideas from alternative, not alternative, but adjacent creative fields that just have never been tried within the within the visual art world specifically. And, you know, not because the visual art world has it all figured out, but it's just because these things have evolved uh, in their own niches in, in, in a very particular way. I'm not a, a fashion nut or fashion hound of any kind, but I really appreciate the the developments and the evolution of the of the fashion industry and the idea that you have these big fashion houses that sort of continue as these entities of these brands that extend on through time that have new creative directors that come in with their own personalities and their own styles and their own signature looks that are able to take over the reins of this large brand and refresh it and renew it and to maintain their own authorial sensibility but within a larger framework uh, is a very interesting model and I have this draft essay that I've been working on which is like what happens when Jeff Koons dies, right? Like, would there be a way for like the Jeff Koons studio to continue with the production of these things that brought in a different artist, but allowed the brand or allowed the ethos to continue? You know, that may be, you know, abhorrent to some listeners ears, but it's like it, as a thought experiment, it's just a, you know, it's a curiosity, right? I mean, you have architecture and design firms that have, you know, persisted for more than a hundred years that bring in talented people that produce very interesting work that extend beyond the life of the of the founder and the names that might be on the door. And the visual arts are so wedded to a kind of single author model that I, I think that there's, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of interesting just from the immediate adjacent creative fields, architecture, design, fashion, film, entertainment, et cetera, that could be usefully applied or adopted for the visual arts that might open things up a little bit, right? Get rid of some of the the orthodoxies that that the the institutional frames of the visual art world still holds dear. And that I think is something that we are very willing to pursue and to kind of push on rather than being invested in the existing models. Yeah, I really appreciate the emphasis on experimentation, and it seems like we need more experimental models that support artists at emerging stages of their careers and are really thinking about or invested in the long-term success and helping them build sustainable lives. Because um, I think beyond like the value of the art objects that they produce, you know, so much of what we talk about on the podcast is about the, the working conditions of artists and just like what it really takes to live a long-term creative life. And I think so much of that lies in being able to navigate these different worlds, um, whether it's like commercial, institutional, you know, being able to kind of move between these and like carve out some semblance of sustainability for ourselves. And so I think like having a, a network of supporters to help with that can alleviate some of that pressure that artists um, face on the day-to-day -day just to manage and handle all of these things themselves. 
and even if you're hiring, you know, support or like you have a team of people working with you, I still think there's um, just something so valuable that you all are trying to offer in the form of mentorship and um, connections in addition to like the day-to-day admin support. So we're really excited about everything that you guys are doing. And um, I'm wondering if there's anything we didn't cover uh, that you think artists should know about Inversion Art. I think you guys did a pretty good job. I don't know. Um, just on your last comment, I just thought, you know, one of the things that's been important to us is, is that, you know, we're working on this revenue sharing model. Like part of that is not just so that we can like enjoy the upside, but it's because, you know, there's two serious problems that artists face when they think about like scaling their studio. Like, you know, going from a single practitioner in the studio and then at some point you hit this like point of success where now the the demands of the studio um, that are not creative start to take over, right? You have like, you know, you got to send invoices and you got to do this and you got to do that and all these things. Like the more successful you get, the more those things add up. And so usually the step is like, okay, now I'm going to hire a part-time assistant. And then from there, you know, but then, you know, I need an accountant. I need a tax preparer. I need a lawyer. I need a this. And you have to like go A, find all these people bring them all together, manage all of those relationships. And then on top of that, there may be a a nine month period where you aren't making any money between exhibitions or what have you, or you're working on a really big licensing opportunity with a brand and, you know, your first check's not going to come until the the shoe you design drops in, in, you know, in half a year or whatever. And so there could just be this whole period where you're not bringing a lot of revenue into the studio, but you still have to have a lawyer take a look at your contracts and you still have to have like, you know, all of these services provided, maybe time to do your taxes and, you know, you, you haven't had a check in a while, but you know you got to pay eight hundred dollars to get your taxes done, or whatever it is. One of the things that we that we've done is one taken all those services, put them into one group, and you really are only talking to maybe Jonathan, myself, and an artist liaison, and you don't have to really worry about like finding the lawyer, finding the accountant, finding you know the tax person, and all of these things. We can take care of all of that for you. And if there is this six or nine month period where you're not making any money, you're also not paying us any money. It's a pure revenue sharing model. So we you know we. It's quite risky for us. I mean, there's no question about it that, you know, that we're taking some risk with every artist we bring on. Um, you know, I had an artist recently tell me, like, I don't know, I feel like you guys won't, like are too focused on finances. We're like, dude, it's very expensive to provide this service. <laughs> and we just need to know sort of what the landscape looks like for you over the next couple of years, because, you know, we're essentially just taking a huge gamble with every artist that we work with. You know, that they may go eight months and we, you know, we're very committed. We're going to stick with you during that period. We're going to provide this service there's going to be continuity of service you don't have to worry that just because you can't pay for a few months like we're not going we're going to stop supporting you and i think that that's like super important for us because it's you know it's very different like artists are very different from other types of businesses in that way they have this income volatility mm-hmm. and i think that there hasn't been a solution yet that sort of accounts for the fact that one they're just one person and managing even six like service providers is very burdensome from a time standpoint, but also paying those service providers when you yourself are not getting paid is very difficult. So that's that's one aspect of our model that, you know, is important to us to maintain. You know, we were kicking ideas around with somebody recently. They're like, I think you should have a minimum fee. And we're like, I just literally don't see how we could possibly do that and like, you know, not be bur- not be placing a burden on the artists when, when they are in between opportunities. That's just one aspect that we think is super important is both, you know, bringing a lot of services into one relationship um, to, to, to minimize the amount of time the artist has to do sourcing those things and managing them, but also to make it based on, the, you know, payment when they're, when they're receiving money so that there's not this, you know, this like heavy burden when they're in between, you know, jobs. 
Yeah, I'm just so appreciative of you all being willing to share more about the inner workings of inversion, some of the challenges you've been facing, um, but also what the potential is. Uh, again, I think we're really excited to um, see what happens and where this goes. Where can listeners find out more about inversion or online? Or what would you say are next steps for artists that might even be interested in getting involved? Yeah, I mean, they can stop at our website. It's just inversionart.com. There's easy ways to contact us through uh, the website. Um, we're pretty easy to get a hold of. Um, and then once they've done that, they should definitely then immediately go to johnhauk.com, which is J-O-H-N-H-O-U-C-K, and, uh, and check out John's work as well. Thank you for that, Joey. <laughs> awesome we'll definitely link to all of these in our show notes and uh share john's work on uh, social media and joey jonathan john thank you all so much for joining us on the podcast Uh, it's been a really great conversation that's all for today's episode of beyond the studio you can find episode notes images links and references over at our website beyondthe.studio While you're there, be sure to submit to our listener spotlight and sign up for our email list to find out about upcoming guests, events, special announcements, podcast giveaways, and more. If you love listening to Beyond the Studio, please leave us a rating and review and share the show with your creative community. Thanks! Thanks!